Welcome to the Penguin Podcast. Just a friendly warning that there is occasional use of strong language. Brought to you by Penguin. I often liken it to being forced to watch a um, home movie of yourself masturbating. You, just, you, 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 you can't believe you've been forced through this atrocity. And did I really do that? And then you kind of make it more palatable as you go. Hello and welcome to the Weekly Penguin Podcast, the place where we explore how our brilliant writers and artists get creative through a series of objects that have inspired them. I'm Nihal Arthanaika, and today you're joining me from the living room of my house. Usually the spare room, but we've come down to the living room. Such opulence surrounds me. And I'm still balancing my mic on a cushion. This week, I'm joined by an author who gave up a career in the music industry to write full-time and has since written 10 books. His second book, Kill Your Friends, was a bestseller, and he then wrote the screenplay for the 2015 movie starring Nicholas Holt. Now, his ninth novel, The Fuck It List, is the story of Frank Brill, who, after discovering he has terminal cancer, decides that rather than compile a bucket list, just do a fuck it list, ready with the names of those who are to blame for all the tragedies that have befallen Frank. Today he's here down the line from High Wycombe in Buckinghamshire, so apologies in advance if the audio goes a bit funny or you hear noises going off. John Niven. Hello, mate. Hey. How are you? Good. Very well. Very well. It's a, it's a long way from High Wycombe to Schilling, Indiana, isn't it? <laughs> Geographically, yeah. But um, I, I feel um, Frank's rage and my own run at similar temperatures. Oh, wow. <laughs> so does a, a fuck it list of your own exist somewhere on the hard drive of your brain or have you written it out or have you got tattooed on your thigh? Uh, I guess sadly not. No, this is why you're a novelist. You get to, to live these things out without actually having to kill a lot of people um <laughs> so yeah I, i'm not i'm not a very vengeful person although this novel would kind of suggest otherwise <laughs> but you see that's interesting because the music industry where you came from is it's kind of full of those kind of petty revenges isn't it it's like someone trumped me on this deal and someone's shown me disrespect here and th- there is a lot of that isn't there because there are huge egos involved yeah it was very much a world of um it's not enough that i succeed others must fail you know, um, it was never enough to have your own triumphs. <laughs> Somebody else had to be ground into the dark in the process, which is kind of, in a way, I guess it's quite a good training for the sort of zero-sum game world we find ourselves in at the moment. It's sort of that attitude fed very much into the new book. Did any of that while you were in the music industry affect you yourself? I mean, Kill Your Friends is just the, the hyper version of that but but did it poison yourself i would it probably did but i didn't really see i I did have a sort of three-year decompression period (laughs) afterwards which looking back now sort of might be a clue that we had been through (laughs) the ringer a little bit but it's like any culture you know when I, i sort of went into it not long after graduation from university and was a sort of you know I wouldn't say an innocent, but I was a sort of indie kid who loved, you know, what I thought was good music and was horrified at first at the sort of sausage factory nature of major record companies. But then it's quite seductive. You get wrapped up in that world of thinking, you know, if it's not a hit, what's the point? 
And then, you know, it's like you don't quite notice your hair growing from a Monday to a Wednesday. After a few weeks or months, rather, you, you kind of get inculcated into that culture. So at, at the same time, you know, it was a lot of fun for a few years. It was mm. a lot of fun until it wasn't, as they say. Yes, yes. As well as being an author, of course, a screenwriter, you co-wrote the feature film of How to Build a Girl with uh, Caitlin Moran, which is out next month. How did you find that creative process? It, well, I, uh, to say I co-wrote it's a bit grand. I mean, it was Cat's life story and Cat's novels and Cat, you know, Cat. It was Cat's story to tell. I just helped a little along the way. But uh, you know, writing with Cat's just a laugh riot. We've written a couple of other things together, uh, an original script as well. And um, as you can imagine, I'm sure getting to spend a few days, weeks in a, a room with Kat is always a great laugh. It's interesting that you said that, of course, uh, How to Build a Girl is her story. She's there in the room with you. It, uh, weird parameters. Where's the kind of the territory for you in that? <laughs> well, Kat had done all the territory, all the, you know, all the yeah. hard work. She created a universe and the character and... Yeah, it was just it was just dealt with structure really. Sometimes when you're really you're really close to something, you can't quite see the wood for the trees, you know. Did your paths cross at all in your music industry days? Really bizarrely not. And this this came up actually a few times. We've got to know each other that we. we, we you must we, have been in the same room. Oh yeah, hundred percent. We're in the same rooms together in the early mid nineties, but we didn't get to know each other until two thousand eleven when we met on Twitter. Funnily enough, and really had it off. Okay, look, let's get to your first object. It's a photograph of you and Garth Hudson from the band, mm. the subject matter of your debut novella. Tell us about this photograph. It was taken at Truck Festival in Oxford and I think about 2010 um, or 11. He was playing the festival and the guys from an Oxford band called Gold Rush, who I'm friendly with, he was going to join them in keyboards to do some band songs. And they knew I'm a huge band fan and I had just I'd written my debut novella. It's about a minor league drug dealer on the fringes of Bob Dylan and the band's circle in Woodstock, set in 1967. But that novel of mine came out in 2005, so a few years before this festival. And they'd asked me along to see if I wanted to jam on a few songs playing with them. So obviously... I was jumping at the chance. And then it turned out, it was that summer where there was this horrendous um, downpour, flooding. The roads around Oxford were all sort of submerged and flooded and uh, nobody could get near the site and we couldn't get any equipment on. So the thing never happened that we were all meant to play together. But um, as a sort of consolation prize, I got to I got to meet Garth Hudson and get a photograph with him. On the day that we met, uh, I was advised not to bring the subject that I'd written a book around his group up because apparently he's very touchy about the idea of people making money off their re reputation so oh, it was wow. this weird situation of kind of um, I couldn't really say what I did or anything <laughs> but it, it was a, it's one of those things I just sort of odd photograph I sort of keep nearby when you look at it what memories does it conjure up mostly rain presumably funnily thought it makes me think more of the book than the than the festival also makes right. me think how much bloody weight I've put on since the photo was taken. <laughs> um, it reminds me of that time of when you when you write your first novel, very often without a publishing deal, and anyone who's tried to write or is trying to write will know this. You have huge 
moments where you're thinking, who's going to care about this? Why should anybody care about this? Am I insane? Am I just knocking out some mad story that only means something to me? And it's quite difficult to keep going sometimes to silence that voice. So I guess look at that photo sort of... um, It reminds me of that time and how important it was just to to silence that voice and keep going. And funnily enough, actually, a few years after the book came out, I was in LA on business and I had lunch with Robbie Robertson's daughter. Robbie Robertson being the band's main Mm singer-songwriter. And uh, she told me at the end of the lunch, almost casually, oh, by the way, my dad happened to read your novella. And I thought, oh, God, I wonder what he made of it. And she said, no, he, he, he said to ask if you were in the room so that wow. was like hugely flattering that this sort of world you'd invented and just kind of slightly, in a, obviously you do your research, but there's a wing and a prayer element to like how right you really get it. So to hear from the guy who was there and who was featured in the book and arguably not in the most flattering light, but to, to hear that he thought it was good was, you know, a lot of validation. How difficult is to to create that world at a time that you weren't around in so to to get that atmosphere i mean that's an unbelievable compliment yeah, to suggest it, that you know god you know were you in the room wow it was it was difficult it, well i was writing the novel around 2003 4 and the, the internet wasn't quite the research tool it is today you know yeah. So it was a lot of sort of actually trying to get all the survey maps of the area and going to libraries and reading, you know, physical research that you could probably do in a heartbeat online now. And I'm terrible at research. I know, I know novelists who will happily research a book for two, three, four, five years. Um, I kind of rather just get writing and then do the research you have to to make sure it stands up, you know, I'd rather sort of make it happen on the page. So you, the research is, it's a kind of hardship, the toil yeah. part of the process. Yeah. Which is probably why I don't write too many novels sort of sitting in a Victorian merchant steamer <laughs> going up the Belgian Congo in 1865. <laughs> I can't, I can't be asked to find out what kind of salt sellers they had in those ships back then. So then of course, you know, the first few books being based around the music industry. Um, was it always the plan that that eventually you wanted to move away from that? Or was it you run out of stories that you wanted to tell from within the music industry? I'd love to um, fool you into thinking I had anything as grand as a plan at any point. <laughs> I, for the, for kill Your Friends, I tried to write just after I left the music industry and I, I didn't get very far with it because I think the experience was too recent. Experience, it kind of needs to distill down through you for a few years, I think, until you're able to deal with it in fiction with the perspective you need. Um, so when I left the music business in sort of 2002, I, I tried to write Care Your Friends and it was, wouldn't work. So I went off and wrote music for Big Pink which I'd had the idea for as well. And then I came back to Kill Your Friends again around 2005. And then the book just worked so much better. When you have the idea, it could be an exhausting thing sometimes. David Mammy, the screenwriter, has got a great quote about this, where he says that when a really good idea occurs to a writer, the next thing you feel is a sort of exhaustion. Um, like You want to say, oh God, are you really going to make me write all this down? 
because I kind of know it in my head, <laughs> but you know that, that it's going to be months and months of putting it on paper. Okay, you know, can't you just, can't I just have, you know, let's just agree that I know what it's going to be like. Just give me the money now. Look, give me the, give me the success now. Do you have to write huge blocks and then edit or are you constantly editing as you're going along? No, you know, I, I never read back to edit while I'm writing a first draft. I, I think that's, um, I, some writers do. I think some writers, do, you know, whatever the two or three pages they write a day, you could take it to the typesetter. But I tend to just try and bash the first draft out as quick as I can and then get on with the agonising work of draft two and draft three and sometimes draft four, because I think with that with that first draft, what I'm doing is trying to tell the story to myself. And that kind of, for me, involves trying to get it down as quickly as possible. If I could, I'd work seven days a week on it because you don't really want to let the trail go cold. Does the second draft have to follow immediately on? There can't be space for you to then go away, do something else, start skiing or whatever, and then come back to it. Well, not, not, not skiing. I am, <laughs> not, that's not my bag, baby. Um, the... <laughs> But you, you definitely need space between the first and second draft. I'd recommend a couple of months between finishing the wow. first draft and start. Well, because you need to come out, if you start the second draft immediately, you finish the first one, it's all still buzzing around in your head and you'll be reading a paragraph and you kind of know how the next one's going to begin. You have to put it away for a while so that it feels like someone else's work. You come back to it with fresh eyes. I find after a two-month period, you know, you don't really recognise the manuscript. You've got the the distance to sort of judge it properly. For me, that's the worst part of the process is reading back the first draft. Writing the first draft is the most fun you have for me, but then having to read the first draft is the most miserable point of the whole uh, thing. <laughs> I often liken it to being forced to watch a um, home movie of yourself masturbating. You, just, you, you, you can't believe you've been forced through this atrocity. And did I really do that? And then you kind of you make it more palatable as you go. That's the, um, brilliant. the equivalent moment in cinema when you work in movies is when you see the first cut of the movie. That's always a shocker. You know, you'll see bits of dailies as you go along. You think, oh, this looks pretty good. And then when you have to watch that first sort of two and a half hour, three hour cut with no proper soundtrack and it's a nightmare. And then gradually as you start to edit, it gets both with the films and the books, it hopefully gets better and better. Can you imagine what it was like when you watched the finished version of Cats, all the people who made that movie? Can you imagine what it must have been like, the silence in that room? I've, I've been in that room, my friend. Not in, a, not in that movie, but I, I've been in that room many a time. It's, oh, well, with albums uh, back in the past. Um, yeah, at least with your own first draft, you're just reading it alone in your study. You're not yeah. watching it in some decimal screening room with like 20 <laughs> other people wanting to die <laughs> well let's move on to a golf club because oh, you've right. chosen a golf club a seven iron tell me it, about why this is important to you a seven iron that belonged to my dad which is one of the few possessions of his my father died in 1993 yeah. so and, and he he taught me to play golf when i was a young man very divisive subject golf because you see it to some people and they think you must be a raving sort of tory and a pringle 
sweater. <laughs> but in Scotland, where I come from, golf's a very working class sport that everybody played at school. Golf courses are plentiful and cheap. The public golf courses in Ayrshire. My father taught me the game when I was five and six. So I've sort of played my whole life. And this became the subject matter for my third novel, The Amateurs, which was kind of the book After Kill Your Friends, which I had the idea to have this story of sort of small time gangsters and contract killing and infidelity and drugs, with the central character being an amateur golfer and his brother's very much an amateur gangster, hence the title. But when I went into Random House, my publishers, After Kill Your Friends, was quite successful. And they said, So what's next? And I said, Well, I've got the idea of this novel about golf. And that was as far as I got. <laughs> you could see that the faces in the room were just like, what did he say? And then I sort of recast it by saying, well, it's about infidelity and drug dealing and contract killing and golf. And everybody, oh, that's fine. Yeah. <laughs> they were all a bit more comfortable with that. I think sometimes you look at bands and the, the records they make are very often reactions to the record they made before. That This was a bit like that and that I, I could not have or would have wanted to write another novel like Kill Your Friends straight after Kill Your Friends. Um, it's the only novel I've written actually set in Scotland where I come from, on the west coast of Scotland. But to write that book after Kill Your Friends, it was a bit like going from the set of Apocalypse Now to the set of Local Hero or Gregory's Girl. It was quite a nice change of pace to, <laughs> to, to go there, you know. So my dad's golf club that... Um, lies around here often reminds me of and in the in the novel the main character sort of um the basic plot kicker is he's the world's worst amateur golfer who gets hit in the head with a golf ball and wakes up with the perfect golf swing amongst some other less desirable sound effects like constant erections and Tourette syndrome <laughs> which all mushroom throughout the, the course of the book but um, when he's in the coma he sort of communes with his dead father uh, on the golf course it was a nice thing when I was writing the book I got to spend some time in the in the mental company of my father which was which was fun it's a frustrating game I played it once and uh, twice mm. actually and I was so bad at it. And I, I came for this this amazing respect for people that can place this this tiny ball so far away with all the wind or whatever that's going on around mm, you. Oh, it's, and I, I, I do have a respect for a it, very, I have to say. very frustrating, difficult game. Funnily enough, I was asked in a, in a reading tour in Germany last year, one of the audience asked them, um, John, if you could be you know a successful professional writer as you are or a successful professional golfer which should it be and I mean I think the second think about that it would be the golfer every time you'd be I said you'd be sitting here looking at an empty stage while I'm off making five million quid a week <laughs> if I could hit the ball at those guys and even not make any money my god you know there's not much I wouldn't give Wait a minute. So does does writing fund your golf golf loving lifestyle? I mean, is a, so you bought yourself a buggy, and I mean, what, what, no, I, I, don't, mean, I don't. I don't drive. I don't drive around a golf buggy down the pub, like George Jones. Um, no, it's wearing. Well, listen, a diamond cut knitwear is not cheap. Let's no, be real, sa right? Sadly, like, um, I, I'd need to sell more books than James Patterson to fund my golf habit to the level it needs okay, to be funded. Okay. I.e. The, the number. Of lessons and you know I'd, I'd have Rory McIlroy and speed dial as a sort of consultant if budget were unlimited how difficult was it 
to write the fuck it list because, you know, writing about this dystopian future, mm. did, you, did you find it easy and kind of fun to do or, or was the, there's a, there was a lot of anger? There's a lot of, a bit of both. It was kind of, you're having fun with it here and there, but there was obviously a lot of anger involved too. I've kind of been on the Trump obsession. I was slightly ahead of the game here. Trump blocked me personally on Twitter way back in 2012 because, wow. well, I, I kind of got, I, I found his Twitter feed by actually back then. I just noticed this crazy old guy who presented this show, The Apprentice, was just obsessed with Obama. He just tweeted abuse about Obama all the time. And of course, on election night 2012, when Obama won his second term, Trump had been absolutely convinced Obama was going to lose. He was already sort of gloating about it. And then when Obama won, uh, Trump sort of said, bah, back to the drawing board. And I tweeted him saying, you sound like a really shit Scooby-Doo villain. And he blocked me. This was way, obviously, four years before he ran. And then, because I'm in LA quite a bit, and, you know, as, as he was talking about running, I'd say to my Democrat friends, I think Trump's going to run. They said, don't be crazy. He'll never run. He's just a blowhard. And then he ran. And it was like, do you think he could win? No, no, don't, that's ridiculous. And don't you? He wins the nomination. Do you think he could win the election? And they're all like, don't be ridiculous. So this was the third time I'd heard, don't be ridiculous. So at that point, I went down the bookies and put quite a lot of money on Trump to win because I thought, this is the only thing that's going to make me feel better if this lunatic gets to the White House. And sure enough, we won a few thousand quid on his election, which Jeez. I immediately rolled a percentage of that onto an impeachment bet, which also came in back in January. <laughs> and I had, I had friends going, how did you know that was going to... And I went, well, look, him winning the election was a bit of a leap of a, a faith bet, but him getting impeached, that was a lock. That was just, take that to the bank the day he got elected because, you know, criminals are going to crime. He's just a crime machine. He can't help himself. So that was a banker. But, I mean, chunks of cash and lols apart, eh, I, I, get, I had a lot of rage that I kind of wanted to, to work out in the kind of, without giving away any spoilers, Certainly writing the last 20-odd pages of the book were quite cathartic in some ways. Yeah. Yeah, I got, I, I got to work through some stuff, as they say in therapy. <laughs> <laughs> Your next object, John, is a motivational quote from James Joyce. Uh, why have you chosen this? I heard years ago that um, James Joyce had this in a piece of paper tapped above his desk. And at it, some point the words, write it, damn you, what else are you good for? And I... Uh, it's one of those quotes that's very effective on mornings where you're just having trouble, you know, dragging yourself to the desk. Because much as I love writing and it's given me some of the... I have some great moments at the desk. Like a lot of writers, when you get up from the breakfast table and drag yourself into your study and shut the door, it can be difficult some mornings to, to get the engine running. And the fact that even James Joyce, you know, arguably the greatest exponent of prose in uh, the, the British Eng in the English novel, the Irish novel, I should say. Uh, the fact that he sort of had to tack these words up in front of him to remind himself to go on with it are quite reassuring, you know? Because as he says, what else are you good for? I mean, I'm really not much good for anything else. I've never really had a proper job I've never I, the the pro golf circuit remains agonisingly out of, <laughs> out of out of reach. So uh, you know I, I kind of I've been lucky enough that we 
we kind of can do this. So uh, sometimes you just need that 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 James Joyce quote staring at you from the from your pinball in the morning, saying just get on with it. You've said that um, that you know doing extensive research is is not you. You've also said, of course, how horrific the uh, it is to revisit the first draft. What is your favourite part of the process? I think writing the first draft when you because you're just sort of making it up and you're just sort of swinging for the fences every day, if you will. I enjoy that a lot. And then the final um, editing, once you know that the actual structure of the thing is is good, is solid, that kind of refinement that of the the final editing and trimming, I, I quite enjoy. What about the characters, the creating? So what part of that do you enjoy most? If you write yourself into a corner and you think, uh, where are we going to go from here? And you bang your head against the wall for a couple of days and then you find a way to get your characters out of whatever spot you've put them in, move them on to the next thing. That's often that kind of problem solving, which there's a lot of mathematics in writing in a way that a lot of it's problem solving. What interests you more? other people's stories or other authors' stories or how the other authors construct those stories? Because it seems like from our conversation we've had that you're a real student of the game, as it were. Uh, I think every every novelist sort of obsesses over other novelists' working practices and what they do. Because uh, the thing I think, I think people think that, you know, I'm now, this is, as we said a moment ago, it's my 10th book that you've kind of got the, the key to all mythologies now. You kind of know how to do this. And the truth is, it's a, it's a pretty, I think every novelist would admit this, it's a pretty scary high wire act without a net every single time. You don't quite know how it's going to go. And you always end up kind of winging it and praying for the best. And then somehow you get there. Which is kind of why, to, to come on to the, the fourth item in my list, um, the bookcase behind my desk is sort of filled with my own books over the course of 10 novels. It's quite a lot of books. It's funny, living in lockdown as we are, I hadn't, th- I hadn't really thought about it, the, the fact that I had all these books in the bookcase behind my desk. But you'll be on a sort of Zoom call and somebody will go, is that like, 200 copies of your own books behind you. <laughs> and, you <laughs> and you suddenly become aware that people might think that's incredibly egocentric. And I should maybe move move them to the other side of the room. But the reason you'd have them around is to look at those shelves. It's a way of almost saying when you're struggling and when you're stuck in something, I'll sometimes look at those shelves and go, look, we've been here before. I've been exactly here 10 times before where we thought it was too difficult and we thought we weren't going to get it done and we've always managed to get there. So you can do this. So shut up and get on with it. But maybe I should move them because it's, it's getting too frequent now. People on Zoom calls going, you egocentric old bastards sitting there surrounded with your own books. Do you still have doubts about your own talent? Uh, yeah, of course, constantly, daily, hourly. <laughs> I think if you get any humility, then you're always going to think you're kind of second rate compared to the people that you really admire. So, so it's always touching when people, you know, and you find this on Twitter or social media, people get in touch quite a lot and saying, yeah, this book meant a lot to me or this is the best book I ever read. And it's very, it's very touching, very flattering, but you also kind of say, 
here's a bunch of other books you should really read if you think if you think I'm any good. Do you like that feeling? I mean, because some people can use that as a as an energy to spur them on to do bit better, or do you find it? actually quite annoying. Uh, no, it's uh, it's neither. I think you have to be careful. Once I'd finished a novel and I went on holiday and I was staying in some staying in a house we had borrowed in France and they had, uh, they had the complete John Updike on the shelf and I hadn't read Updike for a few years at that point, I think since I was university. I hadn't read the, the Rabbit book novels and I picked whatever one off the shelf and started re- reading it and within half an hour thinking I've got to burn my manuscript because it's just absolute guff. So I wouldn't recommend wow. reading somebody as good as John Updike when you're in the process of turning in one of your own books, you know, it might be better, you know, get that James Parson novel down at that point. Let's take a, a quick dive into the fuck it list. This is during the opening when Frank is about to find out he has cancer. Let's hear that bit from the audiobook now. Some might say Frank Brill was an exceptionally unlucky man, born at an especially unlucky juncture in history, a moment in the second half of the 20th century where the America that had been, that could have been, was gone, but still palpable. Like a kid staring at the aftermath of an iridescent soap and water bubble that had popped on the summer air, Frank could still feel the vapor, the sting, of the old America on his face. But still, here it was, the final insult. He almost felt like laughing. Laughing at fate. (laughs) Fuck me? No, fuck you. A bright, cold November afternoon as Frank sat in the doctor's office in silence. Not quite silence. There was the soft hum of the computer on the desk reminding Frank of cost, of the meter running. He didn't know the doctor well, couldn't even recall his name at this second, though Frank was old enough to remember a time when you would have been able to, back when doctors made house calls. We'll get Doc Wood to come and take a look at you, his mom would have said. Nowadays in America, the only way a doctor would come to your house was if you were rich or already dead. And Frank was neither. That was The Fuck It List, written by John Niven and read by Ian Porter. It's available to buy and download now. There's a link in the programme notes of this episode. And whilst we're here, do remember to rate, comment and subscribe to The Penguin Podcast. Please let us know what you think. You can also find us on your Alexa-enabled device. Now, this is the question that so many people like me are asking people like you at the moment. And every author I've interviewed, when I ask them about how self-isolation going, they go, what you mean, life? You mean you mean what I've been doing for the last fifteen years? <laughs> yeah, there's a lot to that. I mean, it hasn't hasn't actually changed my daily routine that much. Um, I'm fairly annoyed at not being able to go to nice restaurants, but you know, um, yeah. we'll we'll get through that. People people have been through worse. Yes, that's very true. Stunningly, not a huge change to my daily routine, which might be a sad day. <laughs> No, that's what you do for a living, isn't it? John, listen, thank you so much. It's so good to uh, catch up with you. Always a pleasure. Cheers, John. Oh, thank you, guys. See you, mate. Bye, bye. Bye, bye. Bye. This is Your Brain on Music by Daniel Levitin. From Bach to the Beatles, Daniel Levitin unravels our relationship to music. 
What is music's role in human evolution and why, Levitin suggests, are our preferences determined before we are born? Here is the explanation of our obsession with music. What is music? To many, music can only mean the great masters, Beethoven, Debussy, and Mozart. To others, music is Busta Rhymes, Dr. Dre, and Moby. To one of my saxophone teachers at Berklee College of Music, and to legions of traditional jazz aficionados, anything made before 1940 or after 1960 isn't really music at all. The audiobook edition of This Is Your Brain on Music is available to download now.